You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double-Edged Devil Bill. This week, the Wachowskis are bound for Jupiter. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. When we'll have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Thomas Mariani! And, uh, I'm Adam Thomas. Welcome, <laughs> yes, to my luxurious place. Look at my reptilian people and weird mouse man. Oh. Welcome. <laughs> There's so much that I want to show you, so come in and look! <laughs> well, uh, welcome everybody to the Double-Edged Double Bill. Uh, and as per every week, uh, we cover a good and a bad feature based around whatever topic we decide to do. Um, and in this case, uh, we decided because it's Pride Month, we figured maybe we should cover somebody in the LGBTQ community. And we figured especially, uh, you know, the Wachowskis which is our topic du jour, uh, Lily and Lana, are two directors uh, who are very sort of uh, prominent, especially in uh, late 20th and uh, early 21st century cinema. Uh, we decided to do one based around them, especially because, uh, Adam, I know this is when we conflict often upon, uh, both on and off mic. We uh, have differences of opinion on their work. Uh, yeah, I, I think that you could say that. I think that's streamlining it, uh, to, to really put it is. You're sort of for a lot of their work, you like a lot of their films, and uh, I, on the other hand, uh, hate almost everything they've done. Where does that come from? Why would you say you're not a fan of their work? Don't get me wrong, I love The Matrix, uh, right. and we'll talk about... I just feel like The Matrix obviously has become like almost like a standard for many, many reasons. The type of film it is, the genre it's in, everything, the effects... All of it. Uh, totally giving Keanu Reeves sort of a second wind as an action star and everything. I mean, really, really is groundbreaking work. And then it's like, I feel everything they've done post that has been mediocre at best. The the sequels, uh, you know, Cloud Atlas and fucking our bad feature tonight. And it's just goosh. I really don't know if mediocrity would be a great descriptor for them even as a negative, um, because I think the the big thing about them that I, at least I agree, I personally had some more issues with them around, especially the time some of these movies were coming out, like a speed race or some of these other things, I wasn't a huge fan, but the more I've like gone back to them, the more I realized that I don't think they're really is an ounce of mediocrity in them as directors. If anything, I can, ter- I can totally see them being too overambitious. I don't mean to say that they're mediocre. I mean to say that the quality of the films is as far as uh, delivering on well, really almost anything exciting. I, I'd argue maybe Speed Riser has exciting moments uh, because of the colors and some of the visuals. But other than that, the rest are just, to me, they're just bore fests. I mean, we'll definitely get into that, I think, with our bad feature. I think they have a problem of uh, they really like creating worlds and sometimes they don't know how to express a lot of the cool things about them. <laughs> That well, necessarily. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it. They like creating worlds, but they don't necessarily even know how to fucking populate them. I don't know, Thomas. Well, I mean, you can at least appreciate the fact that they're probably the only sort of mainstream example of like any sort of trans filmmaker actually being out there. I think that's that goes without saying. I mean, as far as that I personally know of, yes, absolutely. I mean, in terms of like the, there have been trans filmmakers, but there haven't necessarily been, especially like ones that have made major blockbusters. And obviously, I think a big factor and of that. siblings. Right, siblings, of course, the fact that they, if they didn't identify previously as men, I would argue, I don't know if Hollywood would embrace them as much as they end up doing, and like, especially this last decade when they kind of came out as Lily and Lana. Oh, yeah, I mean, without question. I, I mean, let's put it this way, if, if they weren't first identified as men, uh, they probably wouldn't have been able to make The Matrix, in all honesty. Right. Yeah. I mean... So, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. We realize they actually haven't made that many movies, because they made the three Matrixes, and mm-hmm. they made Speed Racer, Bound, Cloud Atlas, and Jupiter Ascending. It's only eight movies. You're right. So I think 
that's a, that's another thing is they like to take their time and which I respect in sort of like creating some of these things and not like rush to it. And also, there's been Sense Eight, which I haven't actually seen any of. I haven't I've heard either. that's pretty good. But do you think it's because they like to take their time, or do you think it's because they their last you know quite a few films have sort of been critical and box office sort of duds? Well, I think that's definitely been the case with like a Jupiter Ascending. And Cloud Atlas. Well, even like, but yeah. like Cloud Atlas, there was even like a pretty huge break between that and the Speed Racer. Um, and Speed Racer was kind of infamous even at that time for like kind mm. of flopping because it came out right in the worst time of like in the middle of like Iron Man Palooza, like yeah. came out the next week after Iron Man. Um, but at the same time, like people always hound upon like, oh, I we hate it whenever like these you know very familiar run of the mill blockbusters come out. But yet, these two, I would argue, have not made, like, really anything that would feel, you know, rote, necessarily. Like, even a Jupiter Ascending, I would argue, isn't rote. It's just very odd and has too much going on. Yeah, and none of their stuff ever feels adapted, really. Even Speed Racer, even though you know it comes from original source material. And I think I believe Cloud Atlas is also a book. But it's, it's definitely definitively a Wachowski's film. And it just feels so different and vibrant in a lot of ways from especially right after that, you know, you had Dark Knight was that same summer as Speed Racer. And after Dark Knight, you had so many people attempt to do like the grim dark stuff. Like I would have killed for more Speed Racery, crazy, colorful, maddening, fun, like blockbusters, which I don't think we would get even until maybe around like a Guardians of the Galaxy movies and some of those. Mm-hmm. I agree with that, yeah. But we're not talking about them specifically, or a Matrix movie. Uh, we're talking about, uh, interestingly, sort of like two ends of their careers. We're going to be talking about uh, The Good Pick, which uh, we end up choosing at the end, one of my choices, because I had two films that I assigned number between one and ten for. You picked a number, and then I did the same thing for your two bad picks you assigned numbers for. And we end up getting My Good Pick of Bound, which was their first film from 1996, and then Jupiter Ascending, which is the most recent feature they've collaborated on. Because uh, as of late, especially like I think, Midway through, I think it's season two of Sensei, they kind of split off as a pair. And I know now um, Lily, I believe, is the one who's doing the Showtime show. Um, and then uh, Lana is doing The Matrix 4 by herself, which should be very interesting just because, like, they haven't done, like, a feature especially separated from each other. I'd be curious just alone to see what they would do on their own. Yeah, Matrix 4, I don't know. I don't think we need it. Well, we'll eventually find out whenever that comes out. Let's first get into our good feature, Bound. Hi. Just wondering if you'd like a cup of coffee. An open invitation like Violet comes once in a lifetime. (laughs) She's making an offer only a fool would refuse. It's over $2 million. You're asking me to help you fuck over the mob. All part of the business. They are bound for each other. What did she do to you? Everything you could. Bound. So Bound came out uh, October 4th, 1996. It was directed by the Wachowskis back before they transitioned at all. It was their first feature. Before this, they had done some like screenwriting work, including they wrote Assassins. The Antonio yeah, Banderas Sylvester Stallone movie, <laughs> which if you don't know, so that is the movie where the great gif of Antonio Banderas looking at the computer comes from, where he's like, oh, yes, yep. Ooh. <laughs> which is all I know it from. Us. Is that movie any good? I've never seen it. Good might be a stretch, but it's <laughs> Banderas is fun to watch in it. He's super over the top. Yeah, because it was very early in his career. Yeah, but other than that, nah, you can probably skip it. No, and they had written, apparently, uh, The Matrix at this time, and they had wanted to direct it, but Joel Silver, who was a big proponent of them, especially through, like, The Matrix days into Speed Racer, was like, okay, I think you all need to try and at least direct something on your own first. And so they made Bound, which was a small little movie, only cost about $6 million, ended up making about seven, and is uh, very sort of much in the vein of, like, at this time, there were a lot of the erotic thrillers that were going around. And um, I can easily say of that crop of movie, this is like the good one. Not even the great one for my take. But Adam, this was actually a bad pick for you previously back in our early days of the show. Yeah. You hadn't seen it in a while, though, and you rewatched it for this. And uh, what'd you think now? Oh, well, let's preface it by when I first saw this, I mean, it was like kind of notorious because it came out, what, like 96, didn't it? Right. 
I was 13 years old, and there's a lesbian sex scene in it, and Gina Gershon and Jennifer Tilly were both incredibly attractive at the time. So it's like, mm-hmm. when I saw it, I want to say, it's one of those, like, when it came out on video, like, I couldn't tell anybody I, I rented it or watched it. <laughs> did, it, it did the job that it would do for a 13-year-old boy, but um, I remember not liking it uh, quite a bit. I remember thinking it was kind of dumb. So rewatching it, because uh, I, I rewatched it today, I think it's good. I, I'd probably agree with you uh, amongst the sort of erotic thrillers. It's probably up near the top. But it, it, to me, there's nothing about it that I haven't seen sort of before other than the lesbian angle. Even to the point to where, you know, I know that they were pushed to sort of cast a man as Corky. And they said, you know, oh, if we do that, it's something everybody's seen before. So it is It is a very sort of, I don't want to say stereotypical, but it's a familiar plot sort of device with, you know, new lovers going to screw over the the husband who's a, like a, a criminal mafioso. They're going to rob him for a bunch of money and mm-hmm. pin it on him. What makes this movie sort of shine and stand out, A, is the incredible uh, sort of cinematography and camera work. I mean, some of yeah. it is absolutely fantastic. Um, it has a very Hitchcockian vibe to it, a lot of it. Gina Krishan is absolutely fantastic in it. So is uh, Joey Pants, Joey Pantoliano. Oh, of course. He's so over the top and gleefully over the top, and his accent is so ridiculous sometimes. Why are you talking about that? It was so nuanced and subtle. Yeah, yeah. Oh, geez, did something happen in there, honey? You know I can't hear. <laughs> like, what the fuck? I think it's good. I don't think I love it to have as much love for it as you do, but I do. I do think it's good. Granted, if I myself at the time when I first saw this, if I was a thirteen-year-old girl or a thirteen-year-old even. Uh, identify myself as homosexual or something like that i could see this being sort of a big deal because it was kind of a main it was a mainstream movie that featured two you know homosexual characters especially lesbians and there's you know full sex scenes between them and everything like that i could see this being kind of like important Mm -hmm. uh but of course i don't identify with any of that as a stupid cisgender fucking piece of shit (laughs) (laughs) Both honestly are. After watching it now, I, I did enjoy it. It was it was way longer than it should have been because I had, I watched it on Crackle, and there's fucking commercials every like three to five minutes. Well, plus I've heard they also censor things on Crackle. Uh, not that I could tell. Well, I was going to ask like if this one it's going to be hard to censor one particular bit. It's just like no, hey, that, no, I, don't, that's I, don't, com- I remember there being a sex scene in this. I don't know. No, that's it's no, it's completely there. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's completely there. The the full you know camera turnaround them and everything. It's all there. Which is an amazing shot, by the way. Oh, yeah, no, it's great. I mean, like I said, there's great shots in this movie, but then there's some where kind of silly, like when they follow the phone cord and then it goes into the other apartment and it goes to the phone cord and there's a loop in the cord and they go... <laughs> I love that bit. Again. That's it's great. stupid. No, it's so unnecessary. You know, the, like I said, it's a, it's a pretty good movie, man. It's got aspects of film noir to it, too. Like even with the apartment that they live in, that's a very sort of film noirish detective story apartment like that doesn't look like a modern mafioso apartment that looks like a 1940s 1950s sort of art deco criminal sort of place uh so yeah i i like it uh what about you yeah i mean i actually first saw this when i was much younger this is actually more around high school um i went to a screenwriting class and they showed the scene um where gino and johnny or at uh, Joe Pantoliano's apartment, uh, one of them being, of course, Christopher Maloney, who's always fun, especially in this movie. Dude, his hair. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, he's going through an awkward phase in his hair. He hasn't oh, quite accepted the baldness. It's coming. Yeah. It's coming very quickly. Um, <laughs> but uh, the whole scene where, like, uh, Joe Pantoliano thinks that Christopher Maloney has stolen the money, but actually it's been Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon. That, that was used as an example, basically, of, like, creating tension with different perspectives from characters and how to write that in particular. And I was like, oh, wow, this is such a great scene. I should watch this movie. I had no idea there was actually, like, a sex scene that was that explicit when I rented this from, like, uh, a blockbuster <laughs> at the mm-hmm. time. And I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Um, I remember liking it at the time. And then I revisited it when I, like, went through all the Wachowski stuff. I think last year I just binged all of their stuff. I think especially watching it this time, it's so interesting because I do agree that it kind of follows a familiar plot structure. Like they said, a big influence was like a Billy Wilder. And you can see a lot of like double indemnity in this in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, what I like is that even that change, I don't think is something that like just makes a minor twist of like, oh, they're lesbians. Because I think especially like it's aged so well now because it's about these two lesbians knowing exactly how these mafioso 
male ego act so over the top in a way where they know, okay, we can use that against them to get this money. And obviously things do go wrong in traditional heist fashion um, as things kind of like go crazy after a certain point. Um, but yeah, I think especially you can tell this this is a great, what I like to call, calling card movie, which I think I've said on the show before. For like a first-time filmmaker, if they want to show, hey, this is us making a smaller movie that um, shows off what we can do. And yeah, for $6 million and just taking place mostly in like two apartments, um, this mm. looks so fucking good. I think a big part of it being uh, Bill Pope who we've talked about before as a cinematographer on this, and uh, they did this for cheap, but they made so much of their money, particularly that whole sequence I was referring to earlier, where, like, Gino ends up getting murdered and Christopher Loney and everybody else. Like, the cinematography is grand-scale and epic, even though it's just, like, a shootout in an apartment with, like, three people. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, they drown sound out. It goes slow-mo and parts and everything. Absolutely. But I, I do also agree that you can tell that it's their first movie. Just with certain scenes, like I said, even the phone cord thing, like it's completely unnecessary. It's just, that's just to be sort of do camera tricks to do camera tricks when it doesn't need to happen. Funny, right. yes, but <laughs> was it supposed to be funny? I'd argue probably not. Well, I think it's supposed to be kind of clever, tongue and cheeky, which I think is they're definitely going for. Because these are definitely also, this feels like a film made by people who love movies, in particular film noir movies. Because like mm-hmm. all the early scenes of flirting with Gina Gershon and Jennifer Tilly feel very film noirish. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, let me go into your house here. Yeah, let, let me just unscrew this. Jennifer Tilly, the way she's dressed in her sort of breathy way of talking and everything, which is normal, but it's very, she amplifies it a lot in this movie. She's a classic sort of damsel. A femme fatale, for sure. Yeah, femme fatale, absolutely, absolutely. Plus, she's Jennifer Tilly. I fucking love Jennifer Tilly, but... Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's it's a good movie. I, I, I do really like it. it. It's easily my second favorite of theirs. Without question. Like, it, it lands, don't get me wrong. How do I put this? I don't think it's as great as you do. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, obviously the point of the goddamn show. But still, I will say that I liked it more than I expected to. Right, especially because, like, you would, you might fear going back to, like, oh, is this going to be more exploitative? But I think it's especially interesting that, like, it feels like it's very comfortable with the sex and it doesn't feel like it needs to apologize for it. I agree with that. Um, in a way, where it feels like these, these two are very open and welcome to it just happening. Like, especially right from when, you know, Jennifer Tilly invites her to go underneath her skirt. Uh, with Gina Gershon, and then that sex scene in particular, the sort of infamous sex scene that was the big kind of hullabaloo about it at the time, um, it feels so much like they're, you can really feel like their heat and passion connection there that would make them want to like go off, and it might not even be a thing that'll like last forever or whatever, but it's like they are really hot for each other, and they are willing to like get the fuck out of this weird mob life and just get going. Also, all credit, because obviously, as you mentioned, Jennifer Tilly is much more like open about like being sort of like traditional femme fatale sexy, while and Gina Gershon, while being more mad masculine is also very comfortable with her sexuality in a cool way and also a way that kind of like really almost feels like it's kind of a precursor to both trinity and neo in the matrix with like the uh, leather gear and stuff like that like when she even goes into the bar and shit it feels like this is like the prototype stuff for like what we get with like the clubs later in the matrix the thing about gina gershon which don't get me wrong i i would never really classify gina gershon as a great actress because I don't think she is. I think hey, she's. Me, she was coming right off of Showgirls, her phenomenal Academy Award winning performance. That's she, true. She used the Donkey Chow She was in Face Off. Um, <laughs> she, um, but no, one thing about her that I noticed in this movie, her body language is on point. Yes. She's absolutely great in this movie. And yeah, the, the one thing that I really like about the writing, you could easily take the stance the whole movie, like, oh, Jennifer Tilly's just using her. She's going to fuck her over. Easily. It works completely. Or you could take the stance that, you know, Gina Gershon might cut and run. And you could take that stance to it. It's The writing is really clever in this movie. It's a lot more interesting now, especially given, you know, that the Wachowskis have transitioned. It kind of feels yes. like it takes on a whole nother ballpark. I completely that. agree that their first uh, major film is a lesbian erotic thriller absolutely it, it adds more meaning to it yeah because it feels like almost this is them kind of like kind of working out some things that they would later finally express whenever they did transition right like i said it feels not exploitative at all when they do have the sex but it feels just very passionate like it and it really immerses you like that whole elaborate uh, sort of shot when they're having sex some might argue oh that feels a bit more like they're showing off because they're first-time directors but it's no it's your like dizzying around with them in this position to the point where mm-hmm. like you feel like you're right in the middle of that sex scene and it's the only time where it really like goes full-on nudity anyway i thought it was very well done because it, it doesn't happen super fast either it's not like it's a fucking whirlwind effect 
it's it's a slow zoom. Then you just follow sort of the line of Jennifer Tilly's back. Then you follow Gina Gershon's frame. Yeah, like it it's really well done. The big monologue Jennifer Tilly has at one point about like, oh, what I wasn't doing there was sex; it was work. It was putting on appearances. Mm-hmm. I think it adds even more. Like there's so many layers to that, but also at the same time, it's just a really fun crime thriller. Like when we get to Joey Pants going nuts. Drunk is so good. Fucking nuts. Like, we, we here are big Joey Pants fan. We love fine Italian pants here at this show. Oh, absolutely. I, dude, he's one of my favorite character actors. He really is. Always has been. Yep. I mean, mm-hmm. Bad Boys, this, The Matrix. I mean, everything he's in, he's really good. I like the fact that even though he seems like he's like, you know, I want to be in charge. I'm totally, like, I know exactly what I'm doing. Like, the whole thing of, like, Jennifer Tilly's just stringing him along with so much, particularly the bit where she calls him on the phone like, asshole, just listen to me, this is your only fucking chance. Just follow along like I'm Gino. Like, I love that whole sequence, too. There's so much great examples of, like, you know, sort of, like, the perspectives of all these different characters. Where you have like somebody who knows so much there, who's listening in on the phone conversation, all this other stuff. It's a great example of how to like use perspective for tension. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, like I said, the, this camera it's filmed beautifully. The, the cinematography in this—it's it, worth a watch just for that. Right. And what would you say, sort of maybe in here or in the Matrix, that you feel is missing from their other films that makes it them stand out as better ones to you? groundbreaking sort of things. Even the idea of the lesbian erotic thriller or some of the camera work in this and everything is not something you've really seen before uh, in certain movies. And then with The Matrix, well, obviously, I mean, there was just groundbreaking techniques and technology and everything all over that place. And then it's, they got, to me, I'm not asking them to reinvent the wheel every time they make a movie, but maybe not just rely on what you've already done as well. Because I'd argue the sequels, the Matrix sequels, are kind of just oh, yeah, meh, meandering, and maybe they try to do something different in them, but I didn't see it, and I, I just what they do do in them is just bore. I think the problem with the Matrix sequels necessarily is that I think they overconvolute things with like a lot, of, especially the philosophy angles of it. Oh my god, dude! When the dude in the suit is talking. Oh, and what's, like, I'll probably get to this a bit later, but I think what he's talking about is really interesting when you actually decipher it. The problem is it's like a decoder ring you need to decipher it, because they're going, they're going, like, two over, like, ergo vis-a-vis. Like, I think he literally says all those things in that fucking speech. Yeah, 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 right, right. The the Will Ferrell parody from the MTV Movie Mm -hmm. Awards did a a perfect job with that. But um, But I think with, uh, like, The Matrix and this, uh, they have uh, great examples of, like, all the characters feel real and the world feels real, but they don't, like, overcrowd it, necessarily, with a lot of, like, either mythology or too many characters. Or ten-minute sweaty rave inside a cave. That's that's true. There, there wasn't that in this. Yeah, um, there wasn't though, that. <laughs> I'm sure that was deleted out of the script. Joseph was like, we can't have a rave! <laughs> what the fuck? You want to do ten minutes of slow-motion sweaty dancing? You'll see, Joel. You'll all see. <laughs> we'll get you. You motherfuckers, you don't tell us. <laughs> but yeah, with this one in particular, like, there's a lot of economics in the storytelling. And it, it does make me wish that we would kind of get them kind of going more back to basics, which I think I always hope for a director. Like, sometimes sure. these directors who, like, do massive big budget things, I always hope they can go back to something small. But it almost feels like you, like you can never go back home again, which is a bummer, because I think they could easily do that with some of... Uh, these techniques like it's not about needing like the big extravagant world building necessarily even like i think a speed racer is fun because they don't overcomplicate because it's a kid's movie it's a very basic thing of like speed loves racing the sort of corporate world of racing is trying like make him take dives and shit like that but he Mm -hmm. wants to keep on racing and doing extravagant fucking flips in the mach 5 while all these weird wacky racer types are like on either shoulder of him that shit's just fun and you don't need to like really over convolute it and i think they've had that trouble even with like cloud atlas which i really dig i think they also do like over convolute a bit with how like some of the stories are structured and the makeup we'll get to that i'm not a fan of that either but my god (laughs) uh but um with bound and all the character relationships feel authentic like i like the sort of back and forth that tilly has with uh the one sort of crime boss who ends up she ends up tricking at the end of the movie and ends up surviving oh yeah mickey mickey yeah i like their relationship yeah and i really love sort of the final scene between the two of them right she's putting one over on him but at the same time it's like well you're like the least offender and he you could tell he offered her to be with him right like stay with him and i'll take care of you and all that like it's really well done 
Yeah, and it's very subtle and it doesn't like go too far with like over explaining like, well, you knew me back at this particular time, whatever. No, you get the whole sense of their characters, which is that. And even like the relationship between her and Joey Pants and how much she just rolls her eyes at everything that he does and how he's able to trick her. And I like, I also love even some of the like small things they do with the camera to like affect how these characters are feeling. Like when Joey Pants opens the case and he sees that it's just the newspaper and the camera's on him with that, I love that thing. Like the rig that's on the actual actor. He's like, oh, oh, fuck. What am I going to do? Because he's going against the wall, shit like that. They really know how to like use these small, effective camera things to even just get you immersed in the character's feelings instead of just over the top stuff. Right. See, this is why I do this show. You're so smart. <laughs> Me am so smart. Yes, I'm like. Um, but, but yeah, so how about your final thoughts then, Adam, on Bound? I'm glad I rewatched it. Uh, like I said, easily my second film of theirs so far. Uh, and it's got a lot of good performances, but like I said, the cinematography is just fantastic in this movie. Uh, there are sense of real scenes filled with tension. Uh, like I said, it's got some Hitchcockian sort of tones too, with the storytelling as far as visually. And I think it's a really, really strong uh, out-the-gate film for a first-time directing, especially first-time directing team. It, it's It's got a definitive voice. It's a really strong first feature. And, uh, I mean, if you are into the Wachowskis, if you haven't seen this, it's kind of worth it to see where they started. And also, if you're into erotic thrillers and things like that, this is definitely a good one. So, yeah, I mean, I really do enjoy it. And that's about the best you're going to fucking get out of me. <laughs> Well, I'm glad I could think of that, Adam. I appreciate yeah. that. And, uh, yeah, I would actually say this is probably my second favorite of their films as well. Um, but I, I think I just I appreciate it, especially from a, like, distant perspective. How much you can get really about, like, you know, sexual identity and gender out of it. How they also balance that with just being, like, a fun, pulpy crime thriller. Even though it's, like I said, this movie takes place only about, like, maybe three locations. And one of them is, like, a bar they have one scene in. The rest of it is in, like, one empty apartment and one really lavishly designed apartment they probably put a lot of the production design budget into. Um, but they make the most out of it in a way that's, like, really clever, it's really engaging, and it really shows a confidence right out the gate for them as directors. Uh, we continue on, obviously, with Matrix and some of these other things where uh, that's something I don't think has really lessened as they've gone on. And I think you can agree is the confidence that they have in themselves. Oh, no, absolutely. They're constantly trying uh, to do new things and sort of reinvent the wheel. Yes, as we'll get into with our next feature. But first, before we get to that, here's an ad for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. Are you one of millions of people worldwide with compulsive geekiness, feeling isolated and alone? Do you wish there were people that understood the thoughts and feelings associated with Geeky Flare Up? There is hope and a treatment program that can help. Ask your podcast service or ESO network provider if the Nerd Bliss podcast is right for you. Or go to nerdblisspodcast.com today. Side effects may include butthurt, movie quotes, nostalgia, warp speed, becoming verklempt, becoming a brony. Appreciation of Cats the Movie, Pantyhose, Asking God What He Needs with a Starship, Donut, Muffin, or Bagel, Bat Shoelaces, Improved Sense of Rhythm, Aiming to Misbehave, Nudity, and Random Arbitrary Lists. Alright, now we're getting into uh, the latest Wachowskis feature together, Jupiter Ascending. Who are you? If she's what you say she is, we're not getting off this planet without a fight. Some lives will always matter more than others. He's part B. Right, he is. As, as, He's Sean B. <laughs> During the promo, everybody, we were talking about this. I was explaining more to Adam about the plot, even though the movie does a, explain a lot of things to you directly. It's uh, so stupid. Right, but Jupiter Ascending uh, was uh, released February 6, 2015, after being delayed a while, and was probably the biggest example, sort of, of the Wachowski kind of having, like, a big infamous over budget one in particular like even with like a speed racer and cloud atlas they didn't necessarily go over budget they kind of stayed within their weird parameters for their big ambitious projects this one was kind of the one that kind of almost got away from them a bit and kind of um ballooned out with uh, the special effects in particular and that was kind of an infamous bomb when it came out about five years ago um cost 200 million dollars only made 183.9 million dollars even though you can tell they wanted to make this like their big space opera franchise kind of dealy um, sure. And uh, this was yours, Adam. And of, I guess, the Wachowski movies you don't enjoy, uh, would you say this one's maybe at the bottom? No, I think the Matrix sequels, uh, especially particularly the third one, I, mm-hmm. is my least favorite of theirs. Uh, but this is right up there. The thing is, it's it's so 
fucking convoluted. Yes. And especially for a long running time like it has. And and it's almost like they had too much money because th- some of it feels so unnecessary. What the fuck is half of this even about? Like, what are they doing? And and, and Eddie Redmayne, what? It's just, it's, he's got dog ears and sky, and sky skates? I mean, if they wanted to build a new universe and a new sort of sci-fi franchise and all this stuff, well, they definitely threw three movies worth of material in one of it and didn't explain anything. There's just, there's so much going on and yet nothing fucking happens for lengths of time in this movie. It, this is definitely a great example of like, this is what your franchise would actually be if you started out with the Phantom Menace instead of A New Hope. Yes, a, a, a thousand percent. That is a hundred percent accurate way of describing it. And and then there's scenes of exposition where they tell you nothing. Like you're supposed to already know these things or like they might have shown it already. What? He's part B, and the the bees are attracted to the queen, and, and Eddie Redmayne. The, the, it's so dull and boring in parts, and just even when there is action, I would never felt thrilled by it because it's so CGI'd. Oh God! And Mila Kunis cannot carry a movie, at least a serious one. The thing is with like um, with me in this one, I remember really not liking it when I first saw it, especially in the theater. I was very much like, "What the fuck is any of this?" And then as I've like I've watched it, I guess another like two or so times, including this rewatch here. Oh, I fuck think how um, one of them was like a Netflix party thing in the middle of quarantine, okay. gotcha. and the other one was for the show. Um, I still don't like the movie, but I think what's tragic about it is i think i i can parse out more interesting themes they're going for i just think this one has a similar problem to the matrix sequels in as much as like the matrix sequels are going for some really cool ideas about expanding that universe they just do it through like they have to really explain it to you it's kind of like if you've ever heard the story of how will smith originally was going to be neo and he's done a great youtube video on his uh youtube channel to explain this where he's like the reason i kind of didn't do it was the Wachowskis tried to explain all this to me about, okay, like, imagine if you're going to be, like, just stand still. Then you're going to jump and we're going to 360 around you with the camera. And in, like, 1998, when they pitched him this, he's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. <laughs> what, what I like about sort of, like, say, a Star Wars or the space opera stuff is kind of being thrown into the world. And you don't necessarily need things over-explained to you. Like, as opposed to, like, in the prequels for Star Wars, they have this problem of, like, we have to over-explain, like, the Senate and this everything. thing and all the details. And everything has to be connected to each other. And right, right, right. Else. Right. Particularly the over-explanation, I think, is a big problem they've had as of with, like, the Matrix sequels in this one. Or it feels like we were really excited about this world. We want to share it with you. But here's all this stuff where it's like, maybe you could say that for if this movie's successful, you do, like, a simpler story and then you have, like, graphic novels or whatever other bullshit that explains this or just that, expand add a little more in the next one add a little more in the next right one. right i can go to jupapedia later right, right before jupiter uh, what mercury ascending or whatever the fuck the next one would be jupiter declining jupiter well that's more this particular movie <laughs> yeah. jupiter declining box true. office so there's stuff in here about like obviously the, the main sort of plot with jupiter the titular character of mila kunis is the idea that she is this uh, humble girl who is also the reincarnation of this um, queen who is like part of this big galactic kind of royal family, right? Royal family with like bureaucratic interest in like mm-hmm. harvesting souls and shit like that. They own the galaxy, basically. Right. You could make that into a simpler movie, but the problem is they have like the, the royal family is where this movie really sinks for me oh. because all of those actors are just tasked with like, oh, hello, me, Lacunas. Let me explain to you my particular facet of this. Right. I'm I'm the sister, and here's my mom, and she was like going to be nine thousand millennia years old. I'm right. like five millennia years old and then this is blah 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 blah. and then we get to the other brother the the other one who is like i'm gonna marry you but it's actually a contract and you're gonna buy this and we're gonna do that you know eddie redman got a lot of heat off of this i think honestly in retrospect seeing his other quote-unquote like prestige performances Mm -hmm. i like him a lot more here because he's not over explaining shit and he's really into the character i completely agree this character in fantastic beasts is like this character if he took a bunch of like sarah quill (laughs) <laughs> it just got just really drowsy all the time. <laughs> but like he had occasional bursts of adrenaline. Yeah, occasional bursts of adrenaline. I will admit he is gleefully and delightfully over the top. Right. He's to me, it's the one thing about this movie that does actually work. 
where he is taking the role, he's into the character and everything, but you can tell, I don't think he's taking it that serious. Like, he's having fun with it. Right. As opposed to the other people, I think. Are kind of like, Everyone else in it is taking it super serious. Right. Except, and I want to honestly say, I think, like you were dogging on Mila Kunis earlier, I think Mila Kunis is kind of doing exactly what is kind of tasked for, because I also do like the fact that this is like a fantasy space opera series based around, like, a female perspective from, like, this woman who kind of ends up realizing, like, oh, I'm, like, a, a princess, but I'm also involved in these, like, giant space battles and shit. And I think Mila Kunis is taking that in decent stride. I think Channing Tatum looks so bored in a sad way. Like, I think Channing Tatum feels so... And this is especially, like, I think this movie killed his comeback he was having. Like, post-21 Jump Street and stuff? Right, in, like, the 21 Jump Street yeah. stuff. Like, he was, like, coming back, getting hot. Like, oh, great, Channing. Like, you're a new discovery. I think this stalled a lot of that. And I think it's been kind of tumbling down since. I absolutely agree. Yeah, because then after this, he was he was going to do, like, Gambit and everything. And then we all know what happened with that. Right. But, like, yeah, he hasn't done really anything of note since. Like, he did, what, like, the Magic Mike sequel... Right. But like so you know what I mean? But I agree. He was on definitely on an upswing. because uh, there was like this, what, Hail Caesar, a couple things, and yeah. it was like Oh boy. Yeah, I just <laughs> feel like with uh in this in particular, he's playing like a guy who's spliced with a dog. Like have more fun with that. Like have him be more doggish. Like really lean into like the silly conceit that you're doing. If you're gonna do it, lean into I it. I agree. Go for it. Instead of just giving him sharp, pointy ears, that's basically it, and awful blonde hair. Like, the only time I think they kind of approach that in a way that I think kind of works is there's the bit where Mila Kunis is talking about, like, oh, I mean, we could be together or something like that. I know I'm, like, part dog. I'm more dog than even human. I love dogs. And he looks awkwardly like, um, anyway, I think we gotta go. You're right. They could have done even, like, giving him Wolverine-type stuff where he's constantly sniffing and, and shit like that, where he's, you know, his ears perk up when he hears something or anything. They don't do anything with it. He's just got sharp ears. That's it. No, and I also will say, I think most of the action sequences are pretty fun in this movie and creative, especially, like, there's that sequence where he I goes just, to, like, they're so the, boring. where he goes to, like, the one Planned Parenthood setting, and, like, then he comes out and all those, like, uh, bounty hunters are after him, um, mm-hmm. and they, like, start shooting him up, and he's got, like, the, the rocket boots and stuff. I like a lot of that stuff. I think that's, like, super fun and creative and weird because it's, like, oh, he's on fucking rocket boots and trying, like, fight off his people and, like, going up the fire escapes. I think the more boring stuff is when we get more space stuff. Like, when we get to, like, I think the climax, I agree, feels like it's blowing over. And it takes forever. Right. Yeah, I think that stuff I don't necessarily works, but when it's, like, sort of space people in the middle of Earth in particular, like, the big also Chicago sequence that happens where, like, being chased by the ships that kind of, like, transform in that weird way. Cool ship designs. I love the look of those bounty hunters, too. I know one of them is Dona Bay, um, and the other one was the David, I can't pronounce his last name, it's like G-Y-S-A-I, whatever. Um, and the third guy, like, I love their looks. Like, how he's got, like, the weird mm-hmm. kind of chrome black look. And she's got almost, like, with, like, the rainbow sprites and stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I love their designs. I love so much of, like, the look of this movie in particular. Like, I would, I would really like seeing this being more streamlined to, like, a fun, as we were kind of mentioning, space opera thing. But then we have to do these sidetracks, like, Sean Bean's half B cool but we don't have to hear him explain this forever about they recognize royalty for fucking ever and then it's like you get these big the big lizard guy who just looks like the villain from zathura (laughs) (laughs) the same fucking thing the thing is they put all this money into a lot of this makeup and stuff they don't do anything with any of it like you have all these cool sort of looking side characters in the background and everything, but then you just focus on boring Channing Tatum. And I'm sorry, I don't think she's capable of, of holding down a whole a whole movie by herself. I think she right. looks great as a ensemble, but I mean, and this movie is way too long. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with that. But I think with the Mila Kunis of it all, I think she works perfectly when she has like a solid like supporting person, like a two, I agree. like a, a, yeah. du- a duo kind. Like I love her in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah, or absolutely. In, in the Bad Moms movies with Kristen Bell. Well, at least the first one with Kristen Bell and uh, yeah, Catherine Hahn. Yeah, that's yeah. the first one. I think, like, she she really, like, works off of, like, somebody who feels like they're invested in what's going on. I don't think Channing Tatum is at all invested in what's going on. Yeah, they, they have zero chemistry. Which is weird, because you figure they would. In, like, romantic comedy, they would probably have perfect chemistry. Yeah, they're both super gorgeous and hot. Yeah. They, they really sort of pepper the screen with stuff to look at. And there's it's real flashy in certain times. And... You know, like I said, all the creature effects and the different makeups and the hybrid characters. My favorite being Nesh, the Elephant Man. The Elephant Man. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I just love the fact that, like, they don't explain anything about Nish. Nish is just like a co-pilot. Like, yeah, Nish, keep going. Go on, do it. Do your thing. <laughs> like, that's great. That's all, but that's enough, though. Right. Exactly. That's I agree. That's good. But like you already said, with the Sean Bean thing, then they spend an give him 20 minutes explaining how he's half beat. I don't fucking care. They also just bring up things and not like, oh, we killed the dinosaurs, technically. And it's like, oh, you, your people killed the dinosaurs? Well, technically, your people, your majesty. It's like, wait, 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 wait. Pause. If you're gonna bring that up, go back to it or don't bring it up. <laughs> Like, I completely agree. <laughs> it's just, it's really stupid, man. It's, uh. And there are other, like, fun details that I like that feel almost kind of, like, Dune-ish. Like, there's that one bit where one of the um, royal family brothers is, like, in the middle of, like, a weird PG-13 water space orgy. <laughs> like, for mm-hmm. some reason, it's like, that's fun. Great. Like, more just, make so many of these other things you're over-explaining details like that, or Nesh, the elephant man. Because, like, right. if, we, if we just, like, briefly bring them up. Or even, like, if you're going to over, like, do it full on board, have some fun with it. Like, I think the best sequence of that, where they do kind of, like, go over the top with it, but in a way that I think is fun, is the whole bureaucracy sequence, where they're with the uh, one robot guy, and it's like, oh, you have to get B-stroke six, this form over here. Very inspired by Brazil, down to the end of that sequence, sure, sure. there's a cameo from Terry Gilliam yeah. as the guy who gives her the tattoo thing. Um, Like, that's fun. And it's like, great, you should do more things like this where there's, like, a tongue-in-cheek it feels like for so much of the other stuff, it's like you mentioned, it's so like uber serious in a way where there's not much fun to it. In a way where I'm just like, I don't, I don't know really where we're going with this, guys. I agree with you. I mean, they could have made it very more comedic, and I think it would have worked more. Mm-hmm. I think this, uh, dude, if Channing Tatum was like really acting like a dog, like not all the time, but had like quirks like a dog and stuff, yeah, totally have been funny. Yeah, and it would have worked. Where he's kind of like trying to itch behind his ear all the time and shit. It would have been fine. It would have been great. Then we're not saying we make this like Spaceballs territory where he's barf. Like, we don't necessarily want that. Or do we? No, I don't want slapsticky. No, no right, right. But like, where it's like, you can have the characters treat that seriously, but also like, p- take it from the perspective of Mila Kunis. Like, this is weird and funny. Like, yeah, especially. make it l- just lighter in tone. Yeah. Like, just because, yeah, it could be funny to her, but it's completely normal for them. Right. And instead, they spend a lot of that energy on stuff like the whole subplot with her cousin who wants to sell her eggs, which feels very extraneous. And then the aliens that are, like, trying to kidnap her, they look like real aliens, like we know. Like, this is just so stupid. This is all so... Yeah, I, I, oh, God. Though, though I'm, I'm very curious, Adam, where do you think that line is between necessarily this being dumb and where something, like, I would argue this kind of reminds me in a lot of ways of, like, say, the David Lynch Dune adaptation. Where do you think that works where this one doesn't? Oh, I don't think the David Lynch Dune adaptation works. No, okay, so you would say they were very similar films in that way. Oh, absolutely. I think the David Lynch Dune adaptation is com- exactly the same, where it's just a muddled mess. You're like, what the fuck are we even talking about here? To rephrase the question, where do you think movies like that, that go for these like big, elaborate space opera universes, kind of fail? Like, what do you think makes them fail as much compared to, say, like a Star Wars or other things that are better? Because, well, I think you, you hit something already on the head where it's like, you can just start in this world. I don't need the explanation of how everything works, everything came to be, any of that. I don't need it. A streamlined a little better. Star Wars is so simple. It's good versus evil. That's it. It's a tyrannical government, and it's good versus evil. Done. This is good versus evil, tyrannical government, but also we are all animal hybrids, and also uh, aliens are trying to get a kidnapper, and also my your dirtbag cousin wants to sell your eggs, and also uh, he has sky shoes, and also there's lizard men, and we kill the dinosaurs, and also it's like it's just too much. Streamline. Streamline works Great. I'm not saying don't have grandiose and big ideas. You absolutely can. Everything you've written and everything that you think is a good idea doesn't necessarily have to be in the movie. Editing, edit, edit, edit. That's the one thing I can say about the Wachowskis that I do firmly believe. After The Matrix 1, I, I think they're really beholden to their material, mm-hmm. which is fine. But I think they have a problem letting things go. No, I agree. Even Speed Racers around a similar length. It doesn't need to yes. be as long as it does. Exactly. Even as someone who really likes that movie, I agree that like I think they they definitely have a bit of a problem with like really um, wanting to invest in like expanding their full vision in a way that might necessarily work for the actual structure of just like a movie. Yeah, I agree. I, there's there's editing problems, self editing and and story wise. There's too much. You can't enjoy one part of a movie like this because there's three more things that are gonna be thrown at you in the next five minutes, and you're like, well, fuck, I can't. I didn't even process the first thing yet. Which I guess is why they kind of transitioned to TV with, like, a sense. I've heard from a lot of people where it's like, if you have that trouble with the Wachowskis, 
like they have a lot more time to elaborate on their stuff with like episodic television. Which may, which fine, yeah, it yeah. makes sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I I just there's just too much. Like I guess to boil it down, yeah, I think lack of editing and lack of being able to sort of sacrifice things right. in order to suit the bigger picture in hand. Yeah, and especially just kind of like throwing off certain actors. Like I forgot how many people were actually in this movie. Like Mila Kunis's friend early on is Vanessa Kirby from like the recent Mission Impossible movies, and Gugu Mbatha-Raw plays the Deer Woman at one point as well, and she's a great actress. It just yeah, feels like they're really good. yeah, it feels like they're definitely just throwing out a lot of these like really interesting talents on just like very lackluster roles, or even like Dona Bay showing up, and she's been in a bunch of those Pachowski movies, or even Sean Bean. Like Sean Bean is here for exposition and occasionally like shoot a gun off. I mean, pretty much. If you're going to do it, then, then fine, fucking make it a three and a half hour long movie, but give all these ideas you introduce time to breathe and time to, you know, mean something. And you they don't, they, especially in this movie. I mean, and well, obviously the Matrix sequels, good Christ, but you, you introduce all these new characters, these cool ideas and these, these you know, political intrigue plot points, and you, do, you don't do anything with them, really. R- it feels like, because they, they said the big influences for them for this were The Wizard of Oz and The Odyssey. And it feels like they're kind of trying to stretch both of those, because even though The Wizard of Oz is kind of episodic in a similar way, it feels like a, a familiar structure that doesn't feel episodic nearly as much as like The Odyssey does. And it feels yeah, like... With this, not, the, well, you can't film The Odyssey in two and a half hours. Well, no, right, but it, it feels like they're definitely trying to like just meet in the middle with that, and that doesn't work, where especially we have to have each scene where we're like, here's um, royal family... Uh, sibling number one, number two, number three. Particularly how that second one ends, where it's like the wedding is called off. It's like, well, I guess you fell for my thing. Anyway, we're gone. <laughs> like, it's a weird way that plot ends. Just like, fine, we're gone. No harm, no foul. Good day to you, madam. I mean, that's basically it. You almost got me there, buddy. You almost yep. married me and murdered uh, me. Oh, uh, we had uh, our uh, fun. We had mm-hmm. our fun. <laughs> like, I, I definitely think, like, you could easily make each of those siblings, like, the villain of a different movie. And it would work out much better. Maybe. I mean, may, I, I argue Eddie Redmayne's the only one that I have z- any interest in. Well, I think the way, like, and this is us obviously back arm, like, uh, quarterbacking, uh, you know, yeah. hindsight 2020. But, like, definitely making those people, like, the main villains, like the other two siblings, or making Eddie Redmayne kind of like an emperor type who's around and slinking in the background kind of thing would have made it, I think, work better. Just that he's a constant looming threat you build up to a bit more. But yeah, I think in this case, it feels like they're cramming in, as we mentioned, so much into a like very small package. Like We didn't even talk about how this movie opens with uh, the backstory of Mila Kunis' parents. Now that's super truncated as well. Oh, yeah. Good, good. It has to set up the telescope, Adam, though. We need to know about the telescope and how important that is. No, but we don't! No! <laughs> that's the problem! We don't need to know any of this bullshit. There's way too much in this movie. Well, I guess, Adam, if you, if, or those your final thoughts, do you have anything else to add about Jupiter Ascending? Christ, no. <laughs> well, you know, I think for me, I would say I appreciate the ambition, and I don't, like, hate this movie necessarily, but it's more just I'm watching it and, like, I can see a more concise, fun movie in this. And there's fun stuff in it that makes it, I think, just more, like, uneven to me more than anything else because when it's like a big elaborate action sequence or occasional fun bits or Eddie Breadmain, like I said just like going full bore I'm having fun and I'm enjoying this as like a campy big space opera almost near like a Flash Gordon but then it goes more into like the heavy exposition which is just a problem with these two in general they're very ambitious filmmakers and I really respect that and I think even in some of these other movies despite like sort of the over ambition it works better than not but in this case this is one of the examples where I agree it definitely just doesn't quite work as well as it should but that's the end of our discussion of our two films from the Wachowskis here but we have some other things to share including our picks for next week so stay tuned for that first we have to read your feedback because every Monday at DEDB pod we share a post about like hey uh what are your favorite least favorite things related to whatever topic we're doing and this is on Facebook and Twitter at DEDB pod by the way and so first off we have uh Shaquille Lambert favorite guest of ours, uh, Mm -hmm. says, The Matrix is a first ballot entry for the greatest movie ever made, and even if it has uh, some faults, The Matrix Reloaded deserves some credit for its ambitious subversion-slash-criticism of the hero's journey and two all-timer action sequences with the Chateau fight and the highway chase. On the other hand, Matrix Revolutions is first ballot entry in How to Fuck Up a Trilogy Hall of Fame, and Speed Racer is an example in how being extremely faithful to a property is not always a good thing. Also, if you're counting producerial credits, V for Vendetta is a massive snore. 
Uh, James Rodriguez, another favorite guest of ours, says, The Matrix is a classic for good reason, but Bound will be my favorite of their work. An engaging thriller that's taut from top to bottom. The Speed Racer deserves a mention as an underrated part of their works as well. My least favorites would be Jupiter Ascending, even though Bees Sensing Royalty is batshit trait I kind of love, and Eddie Raymond's and Eddie Remain's performance is a more fascinating than the one he won an Oscar for around that same time. Um, although, if we're counting producer credits, I'm not a fan of Ninja Assassin. Uh, and then Nate Thomas... What? <laughs> then uh, Nate Thomas says, Good, The Matrix, Bad, Everything Else. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rachel Tallis says, uh, Best is still bound for me. Joel Copeland, at Real Joel Copeland on Twitter, says, uh, The Best, The Matrix, a masterclass in propulsive action entertainment. Really cool ideas that it actually engages with an iconography that's part of the culture for a good reason. And then Worst Jupiter Ascending, neat ideas, but it just kind of pummeled me with exposition and dull action. Uh, and then Marie at Swiftly She Flies says, It's a TV show, but Sensei Season 1 is one of my favorite things that they've ever done. I don't think V for Vendetta is a bore fest. I mean, I have to disagree with Shaq there. I actually do kind of like the movie. It does drag in spots, so I will give him that. And uh, Ninja Assassin. God, I wish I could smack James. Ninja Assassin is so fun. To me, it's 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 just a great ninja movie. It's like the, everything I wanted to see ninjas do as a kid, or I could imagine they could do, like the crazy mysticism magic, they do wonderfully in that film. I absolutely love Ninja Assassin. You're, you're one of the only people I've heard that uh, really dig that one. That's interesting. Uh, oh, I dude, I think that. it's so fun. Like, it's not good. Okay, I'll, I'll go right here. It's not a good like the mm-hmm. the side plot to it like is stupid but the action scenes in it are amazing. It's so well done the action and like I said the ninja stuff where I mean they literally materialize out of shadow and shit. Like that's badass. But yeah, the the, the actual story is stupid. I'll give it that. Yeah, I mean, and that's from James McTeague is the director of that who was sort of like a protege of theirs uh, cuz he mm-hmm. also did V for Vendetta. Um and uh-huh. then he went on to do like The Raven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John Cusack! John Cusack, oh, no. Edgar Allan Poe thriller and stuff like that. Yeah, he really and uh, Breaking In recently, a Gabrielle Union thriller, um, where she, where someone was breaking into her house and shit, just like really, oh, God. stupid shit. Oh, yeah. oh no! <laughs> Whatever, Ninja Assassin's awesome. I, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll take Ninja Assassin over V for Vendetta. I really will. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen V for Vendetta since it came out. So I'd be curious to revisit that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also been waiting to kind of like have some time to read the graphic novel, even though I understand they're very different. I'd be curious just to see very the different, different perspectives on that. I said a lot of things about Speed Racer before this, but I think Speed Racer is just a lot of fun. It, it's mm-hmm. candy-colored madness in an enjoyable way, but I also kind of get emotionally invested in it, weirdly. Like, I actually really like the dynamics of the Speed Racer family, like, even with, like, uh, Paw, John Goodman, and Susan Sarandon mm-hmm. Mom, and Speed. I think there's a mm-hmm. lot of fun to be had there. If anything, the only real big issue with that is I do not like Matthew Fox. Matthew Fox has only turned in one great performance, I'd argue, uh, period. Other than that, he's just kind of bland. Right, and Bone Tomahawk, which you previously yep. talked about. Yep, or uh, no, he's bland. Um, and then, uh, you know, we screwed around, like, the Matrix and stuff, and I really agree with what Shaquille's talking about, with especially Matrix Reloaded, because, like, the architect scene, which we talked about, mm-hmm. like, an over-convoluted scene but what they're getting at is actually something really interesting. Or, like, The Matrix is basically, like, a f- very similar, like, familiar hero's journey story with Neo and what kind of happens with him. In The Matrix Reloaded, that speech is saying, that like, oh, you've just been doing this forever. Like, right. you're not the first one. This is something that, like, we've programmed in The Matrix to reboot it, basically. And I love also in that scene the whole thing where um, the, all the different Neos are around just to show how many times this has happened. And all the weird things that fucking Keanu's doing. Like, the one where he's just laughing at the camera and shit uh-uh. like that. Like, that's all so cool. But once again, it's just drowned out in a lot of exposition. Oh, I know. But yeah, the freeway chase is badass. And yeah, the fight scene in the Merovingian's chateau or whatever is awesome. I, I, I'll give it. I, I agree with that. And another lost opportunity with that. Like I didn't realize this until like watching those movies like fairly recently, like around when the Matrix had its twentieth anniversary last year. That the whole idea with the Merovingians, like different people, is like, oh, they were programmed as basically like ghosts or werewolves or vampires, or vampires in yeah. the Matrix. Do that! That's cool. I, I completely agree. That's why those two twins are badass. Yeah, because they're like ghosts. Yeah, dude, they're flowing through cars, and then, like, his henchman, when she walks in and shoots him, they got fangs and shit. I'm like, yeah, dude, why can't we do this, then? Let's get, get fucking wacky, then. This guy can program whatever he wants in the Matrix. 
Why not have him fight fucking werewolves and shit? Go nutty with it. Yeah. It would have been totally awesome. Instead, he makes a woman orgasm for eating a piece of cake. Yeah, the Monica Bellucci thing. I don't, why did we do that? I don't know why we needed that. Yeah, kiss me the way you kiss her. Like, what the fuck are we doing here? This is so stupid. And, and even though I don't like the fact that they brought him back in just their own principle, I think Hugo Weaving's a lot of fun in uh, the Matrix sequels. Oh, yeah. He's, he hams it up so well, good. He, like, so even in Matrix Revolutions, when like he's thinks he's destroyed Neo, it's like, no. <laughs> no. I know, it's so good. So obviously, that movie made Hugo Weaving the first one. Yeah. Uh, and he's so del- just gleefully starts getting over the top in that one, too. Like, near the end, when he's got Lawrence Fishburne tied to the chair, you know what I mean? It's so good, you know. I need to get in. I need out of this. And he's rubbing his head and shit. I'm like, this guy's out of his fucking gourd. You're a virus. That's what humanity is, yeah. a virus. Tell me, how will you make a phone call if you are unable to speak? <laughs> <laughs> like he's so good man but that to me is part of the problem with the matrix sequels he should not have come back no if agent smith if they had killed him off in the first one like i think was actually planned would have gone down in history as one of the greatest on-screen villains i really do but the fact that they brought him back for the second and third one and ballooned it up and everything it ruined it it ruined the character we haven't talked about it but like the animatrix i think is like mostly fun like really the only ones i don't yeah. like in the animatrix are the ones that more heavily tie in like the one that's about the kid like, i don't give a shit yes. that second who cares yes i agree the skateboarder um, kid or whatever yeah I agree. right but the other ones that just sort of like do a bit of like filling in the holes in a way that you could have like a jupiter ascending are like so much fun like particularly the one that's like the whole um history of zion and how it kind of like rose up yeah, um, I agree. Showing that I, love I actually, that's a good point. I do dig the Animatrix. I agree with you. I think the the main segment that people always remember, like the the real CGI heavy one, where it's basically like it looks like the Final Fantasy animated. The, the movie. one that connected to like the video game and shit. Yeah, uh, yeah, I believe that's the one. The main where it's like Ming Na Wen is the voice of the. The girl and everything. That one's kind of... Well, well, the eh. thing is, with that one, like, that should have been in the Matrix sequels, though. That's just, like, well, necessary I, that's, plot information. That's, I, I, think that's, I think that's my problem with it. Yeah. The fact that it's relegated to this, you know, 10-minute short where it should have been a major plot point, And they could have got rid of so much other bullshit. Like, in the third one with that fucking kid... Where he's down in Zion, he's dropping the ammo and all the stuff, and then there's the one general's like, "I believe in you, kid." And you're like, "Oh God, why are we doing this?" It reminds me of the fucking shit from the uh, the King Kong, Peter Jackson's King Kong with the uh, Jamie Bell and the sh- and the ship captain. Oh, you mean the first hour they spend on the ship that yeah, they didn't need? <laughs> don't give a fuck. And that's the same thing they do in the Matrix sequels. Like, why are we spending this much time with this? Nobody cares about this character development between these two fucks that you know have nothing to really to do with the story. Yeah, I think that's another director who we might be doing in the future, put a pin on that. Peter Jackson, I think, suffers from similar things. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, just to even get off the matrix of it all, like, we kind of, like, no one brought it up in the feedback, but I did just want to mention, like, aside from the stuff with the makeup in Cloud Atlas, which oh. I agree is, oh. like, very problematic and weird. Even though, like, what they're trying to go for with, like, I love the whole theme of that movie, is the idea that all these people connect in this way, where it's even if they're in different time periods, different, like, you know, total cultures, cultures, like, there is a connection that's there. I just think the problem with doing that were, in that particular segment, the idea is, oh, it's been so long that, like, race is, like, blended all together. It's like, yeah, but you also did, like, really, like, slanted eyes. That's fucked up, and you shouldn't have done that. It really does not work whatsoever. And Halle Berry Berry and... uh... Uh, Jewish woman, white face, is it, it doesn't work. It, right. it just doesn't look good. Right. I think there's just more an issue if there's the makeup design on there. But I, I love so much of that movie. I think that movie has an underrated score, which is done by Tom Tickford, who they collaborate with as director mm-hmm. on that particular one. And I just think there's there's so much. That's, that's another one that's like super ambitious, but I would argue most of the stuff ties together really beautifully by the end of that particular movie. But I also get why people aren't even, like, a big fan. Like, I think the Wachowski's the thing is when you brought up the mediocrity thing, I get more of them as, like, a love-it-or-hate-it type directors. Like, they're very kind of divisive in that way that I totally get because they're so ambitious that, like, it can really make you fall either way. Right. The thing about them is I'm not 
going to give up on them as directors. Like I will still watch kind of anything they put out, even if you want to, I, I'm not saying this is the case, but you could base it solely on how good the matrix is mm-hmm. that I, dude, I'll check out anything they do just to see. I mean, even matrix four. Yeah, of course I'm going to see it. I don't expect it to be bad. I don't expect it to be good. I don't expect anything out of it. And that's the way I'm trying to go in with most of these type of movies lately. Yeah. Uh, just go in and see what happens. I've seen some of that like behind-the-scenes stuff of them when they were shooting in Chicago back before you know COVID happened. Yeah. Keanu's stunt double was like on wires going from one fucking building to the other. Like There's a lot mm-hmm. of practical shit still, which I think is right. like the, the strength of especially the first Matrix is that it's a lot of like... Uh, practical combined with CG because that was a really low budget movie by comparison to like a lot of the other bigger blockbusters that only cost like sixty million dollars, right? Which is insane. I know because it looks like oh, this is like a two hundred million dollar budget movie. Oh, but... easily, yeah, easily. They they got every penny worth out of that one. If plus if nothing else, like I would bet you Keanu would not have come back for any scenario because they were rumors of a Matrix coming back, mm-hmm. and they're like, I really don't want to do it unless the Wachowskis are somehow involved. And he was really interested in the script. And he's been, you know, picking pretty good projects more than not recently. Uh, agreed. Agreed. So, thank you for all that feedback. We also want to thank a couple other people, like to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And uh, as we did last week on the show, we're going to spotlight a charity in the show notes here. Um, this week it's going to be for the Trans justice funding project any uh donations that you'd be able to give uh would go to support grassroots trans justice groups uh run by and for trans people so we'd recommend if you can donate some money please do and if you can't at least try and spread the word around so uh, that great cause gets more eyes on it and uh, you can find us as i mentioned on twitter and facebook at dedb pod where we ask you about like what are your favorite and least favorite things related to the show and uh, you can uh also email us double edge double bill at gmail.com and uh, you know what if you can't subscribe to us on patreon uh, patreon.com slash dedb pod um that is uh you know where we're just for one dollar we post up polls and stuff and uh we also post up a bonus episode every month. We'll be having our commentary on The Last Jedi coming sooner rather than later before the end of the month. Ooh. So that'll be a lot of fun. And uh, you can uh, find some of my writing at uh, marianithomas.wordpress.com where I do reviews and stuff like that. Um, and uh, you can find Adam uh, just trying to escape whatever fresh hell of Jupiter Ascending and trying to get out of the exposition machine that's being just exposited onto him. Mm-hmm. And to whatever fresh hell we're going through right now as a country. So really, just I'm in all sorts of fresh hell all the time. Yep, fresh uh, fresh hell. All so much things to delight and terrorize. So fun. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, if you want to escape that madness, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on the ESO network, why not dig into the archives for the first several episodes? And if you can, just please uh, rate, review, or share us around, because that gets us more visibility out there. Yeah, not that hard to do. I mean, honestly. If you like our show, if you listen to it, and, you, and you're able to on social media, just give a share. Yeah. But... Uh, now, Adam, it's time that we did our picking for next week, which, interestingly, we mentioned our Patreon. Um, on there, we do mm-hmm. polls for people to pick topics that we cover for the show. And you all uh, picked as a topic between, uh, we were decided to focus more on a comedy thing. We were either going to do Judd Apatow Productions or SNL cast member vehicles. And you all out there who are patrons for just $1 a month chose SNL cast member vehicles, which, keep in mind, is not just movies based on SNL sketches, not just your Blues Brothers' or your Wayne's World's, but movies where it's a vehicle for someone who used to be a cast member on SNL or was at the time, who knows. But, or uh, they quit the show to do the movie, or right. whatever. So, and though keep in mind, also we both Nat and I mutually agreed we're not going to have picks related to like people we might do an episode on in the future, like say in Eddie Murphy, we kind of avoided that. We kind of avoided um, like, Mike Myers, Mike Myers, because we've done him a lot recently as well. Uh, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Bill Murray, yeah, um, uh, Will Ferrell. I think we also kind of agreed. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so some of the guys who have like huger careers, as opposed to SNL is kind of famous for like people who are really good on SNL, and sometimes they're like you know reliable sort of like small comedic character actors or big stars, or sometimes they don't do anything really after. Correct. So you have the good picks for this, Adam. You've assigned number two and one and yeah. ten for both of those. I've done the same for my two bad picks. So Adam, for your two good picks, I'll pick number four. At number two. 
appropriately for the film, I have Bill Hader, Kristen Wiig, the Skeleton Twins. You know, I've never seen Skeleton Twins. This is going to be fun. Oh, I've, or great. at least interesting. Like, I know that's more dramatic. It is. No, it definitely. It's a, it's a dramedy. Yeah. But it's, it's really good. Great. Fuck, is it good. Cool. Okay. And what was your other pick? At number eight, I had Garrett Morris and the stuff. Oh, God, the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen the stuff. That's a lot of fun. And he's very yeah. fun in it as well. Yes, um, he is. And he was also a very underutilized SNL cast member. He kind of said he was treated as sort of like the token because he was the only black person. Yeah, I think probably one of the most underutilized. Yeah, because he's very funny. Dude, people just don't remember him being on the show. Like the only sort of memorable sketch he did was like the interpreter for the deaf, yep. I would say. That's a bad idea. Yep. All right. And uh, now Adam. <laughs> I had so many choices. Dude, way too many. I'll go number nine. Mambo number nine. All right. So Adam. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> we're going to be Sorry. doing um, from uh, a cast member from the sort of like late 80s, early 90s. So I ended up getting this uh, particular vehicle in 2003. Dana Carvey in Master of Disguise at number nine. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> oh, I fucking hate that movie so much. <laughs> oh, that is one of my least favorite movies of all time. Oh. Like legitimately. Oh, boy. Oh, I'm going to be I'm gonna be yelling on that one. You know, I remember seeing that in the theater as a kid because oh, my dad so really wanted to see it. fucking stupid. Oh, no. I remember not liking it at the time, and I'm sure I'm going to just loathe it even more now. But at oh, number two, God. I had one from a, a cast member on SL who I just fully do not like whatsoever, even though now he's like... Sure, on, sure. Um, he's the host of a late night show, Jimmy Fallon's Taxi. Oh, fucking hell. Well, Master Disguise, I think there's going to be more to talk about. Yeah, exactly. Taxi, Maybe. I just... I, I don't know. But I, I, I fucking hate Jimmy Fallon. I, I never like Jimmy Fallon. Fallon. I can't fucking Like, stand you, you have plenty of, like, irrational hatreds. He's, like, one of my big ones. Oh, he's up there for me, too. I, uh, I can't fucking stand him. See, we mutually you agree in hatred. <laughs> you seen breaking piece of shit. That's... <laughs> Yeah, I don't like it. And, and, and now he's fucking on late night, just like, oh, this is doing beer pot with celebrities. <laughs> look how fucking crazy and funny and youthful I am. <laughs> and then look, hey, you're, you're, I'm going to do an interview. I can't even stop laughing in interviews. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. You're, everybody is so awesome. Uh, All right. Well, so, uh, Master uh, of Disguise <laughs> and Skeleton Twins, two esteemed <laughs> vehicles for SNL cast members. Yeah. That we'll get to. Uh, but on that note, Adam, it's time to get into uh, our rocket boots and go off to Jupiter. Let's go. Goodbye. I will be back next week. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.